invite you, loved ones, to turn now in the Scriptures, the Holy Scriptures, God's Word, to Isaiah chapter 5, which will be our text this morning. If you're joining us this morning, we've been making our way through this majestic book written by the prophet Isaiah, and we find ourselves here in chapter 5, which is actually the last part of his introduction, the sort of preface to his entire book. We've seen the past few weeks that Isaiah is setting the tone for the rest of his message. He's laying out the main themes that he will pick up and draw upon as he continues in his book. And here we come to this important message from Isaiah chapter 5. So hear now, loved ones, the word of the Lord. I will sing for the one I love a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile hillside. He dug it up and cleared it of stones and planted it with the choicest vines. He built a watchtower in it and cut out a wine press as well. Then he looked for a crop of good grapes, but it yielded only bad fruit. Now you dwellers in Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done for it? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge and it will be destroyed. I will break down its wall and it will be trampled. I will make it a wasteland, neither pruned nor cultivated, and briars and thorns will grow there. I will command the clouds not to rain on it. The vineyard of the Lord Almighty is the house of Israel, and the men of Judah are the garden of his delight. And he looked for justice, but saw bloodshed, for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. Woe to you who add house to house and join field to field till no space is left and you live alone in the land. The Lord Almighty has declared in my hearing, surely the great houses will become desolate, the fine mansions left without occupants. A ten-acre vineyard will produce only a bath of wine, a homer of seed, only an ephah of grain. Woe to those who rise early in the morning to run after their drinks who stay up late at night till they are inflamed with wine. They have harps and lyres at their banquets, tambourines and flutes and wine, but they have no regard for the deeds of the Lord, no respect for the work of his hands. Therefore my people will go into exile for lack of understanding. Their men of rank will die of hunger, and their masses will be parched with thirst. Therefore the grave enlarges its appetite and opens its mouth without limit. Into it will descend their nobles and masses with all their brawlers and revelers. So man will be brought low and mankind humbled, the eyes of the arrogant humbled. But the Lord Almighty will be exalted by his justice and the holy God will show himself holy by his righteousness. Then sheep will graze as in their own pasture. Lambs will feed among the ruins of the rich. Woe to those who draw sin along with cords of deceit and wickedness as with cart ropes. To those who say, let God hurry, let him hasten his work so we may see it. Let it approach, 
Let the plan of the Holy One of Israel come so we may know it. Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Woe to those who are wise in their own eyes and clever in their own sight. Woe to those who are heroes at drinking wine and champions at mixing drinks, who acquit the guilty for a bribe, but deny justice to the innocent. Therefore, as tongues of fire lick up straw, and as dry grass sinks down into the flames, so their roots will decay, and their flowers blow away like dust. For they have rejected the law of the Lord Almighty, and have spurned the word of the Holy One of Israel. Therefore the Lord's anger burns against his people. His hand is raised, and he strikes them down. The mountains shake, and the dead bodies are like refuse in the streets. Yet for all this his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. He lifts up a banner for the distant nations. He whistles for those at the ends of the earth. Here they come swiftly and speedily. Not one of them grows tired or stumbles or slumbers or sleeps. Not a belt is loosened at the waist. Not a sandal thong is broken. Their arrows are sharp and their bows are strung. Their horse hoofs seem like flint. Their chariot wheels like a whirlwind. Their roar is like that of the lion. They roar like young lions. They growl as they seize their prey and carry it off with no one to rescue. In that day, they will roar over it like the roaring of the sea. And if one looks at the sea, he will see darkness and distress. Even the light will be darkened by the clouds. So far, the reading of God's word. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. May he add his blessing to it as we consider it this morning, loved ones. On February 4th of 2004, a Harvard sophomore by the name of Mark Zuckerberg launched Facebook. Now, by the next day, over thousands of people had already registered for their own private accounts. And today, about 2.9 billion people around the world have their own personal accounts on Facebook, which is now, I think, called Meta, right? Well, social media is a new phenomenon. And now, in our current moment, it's so widespread, it's so invasive, it's hard for us almost to even remember what life was like without it. It's this kind of invasive vine that has taken over and overgrown so much of life. And the old ways of relating to one another, we don't really have anymore, or they're falling away. Now, how has social media changed us? In many ways, it has changed us. But in one way in particular I wanted to draw your attention to, social media has intensified our desperate desire for the approval and the acceptance of others. It's intensified our desire for the acceptance and approval of others. Humans have always wanted the approval of other humans, right? Uh, that hasn't changed. We've always been tempted to win over the smiles and the favor and the cheers of other people by presenting our best version of ourselves, presenting that to others. But social media has just exacerbated this desire within us and has led us to kind of an endless trap. We curate how other people see us. We show off 
the fruit of our lives, right? All of our experiences that we have, we post those online, our unique clothing that we have, our skills and talents, our creativity, and why? Why? Well, our heart, our heart longs for others to like and subscribe to follow us. We are saying, in a sense, please accept me, approve of me, admire me. We are hungry for the affirmation of others, affirming our way of life, that our way of life is good, beautiful, and true. Now let, us, let me ask this question. Is it wrong for us to want approval and affirmation? Is it wrong? I don't think so. It's actually a good desire. It's actually what we need most. Our hearts were made to be fully known and fully loved. And that's why our hearts are so strongly pulled into this whirlwind of social media. We jump into it, hoping that we will get the love that we were made for. But it pulls us down to the vortex of superficiality. It's not the kind of approval and acceptance that we were really made for. We all know this, right? The likes on social media, it's so superficial, it's shallow. Those people don't really know us as they're clicking like. They might like something that we post about ourselves, but they can't truly like us because they can't really know us by simply looking at the social media version of ourselves that we're posting for the world to see. So at the end of the day, people are liking an avatar, avatar version of ourselves, a digital version that we're putting out there. But they don't really like or love us because they cannot truly come to know us on social media. Tim Keller, pastor, theologian, he says this, to be loved but not known is comforting, but it's superficial. So it's, in a sense, it's comforting to get those likes, but it's superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. We're afraid of opening ourselves up and and letting others see who we really are. We're afraid that after showing, showing others who we are, that we might not receive their love in return. This is why we're so drawn into the trap of social media. We are avoiding the great fear of being known and not loved. And Keller, he continues saying, but to be fully known and truly loved, well, is a lot like being loved by God. It is what we need more than anything. It liberates us from pretense it humbles us out of our own self-righteousness and fortifies us for any difficulty that life can throw at us. What does that mean? Well, God, loved ones, he is offering us the true love and acceptance that we need. God is saying to us, I fully know you, not just the digital avatar version of yourself. I see your heart. I see all of you. I know you from your rising up in the morning to your lying down at night, I know all that you are, all of your thoughts, all of your desires, all of your actions. I know you fully, and that does not hold me back from you. I am still inviting you, God is saying. I'm inviting you to come to me. I love and accept you just as you are right now, and you don't need a filter to present yourself in order to receive my love. Come just as you are. And so we find that the one true God of the Bible, he is more loving and gracious than we can even begin to imagine. And if we come to him today, he will truly and fully love us just as we are. And that is such a comforting, reassuring truth. 
But here's the thing that we find also in our passage this morning, that God does love us just as we are, but he loves us too much to leave us as we are right now. In love, God wants to change us. He receives us as we are, but he wants to change us. His deep love for us doesn't mean that he approves of everything that we do or every part about us. Now think of this, parents, you love your children, right? You have a deep love for your children. Does that mean, however, does that mean that you love everything that your children do? No, it does not, right? They do things that are bad. They have aspects and characteristics or habits, rather, about them that, are, that need to be removed, that we need to help them shed, to prune from their lives. Things that they say and do that do not look good on them, right? What do you want for your children, parents? Don't you want them to become the best versions of themselves? Well, that's what God wants for us, for his people. God loves his children, his people so much that he will not stop working until each one becomes the best version of himself or herself. God is so committed to us in love that he does not let us stay where we are. He accepts us as we are, but he is committed to change us, to transform us. You know, in 30 years, I want to look back I want to look at my, my boys in their lives, and I want to see two mature vineyards, so to speak, well-rooted, with hearts stabilized in God's love and producing good fruit, hearts active in doing good, righteousness, believing in the truth and living it out. That's what God wants for us as well, and that's what we find in this passage. We find the heart of God for his people. He loves us so much. He wants to transform us so that we are stable and fruitful, more fruitful than we are today. Ray Ortland, in his commentary on this passage, says this. Listen, this is very important. God's grace not only accepts us, it also transforms us. But if all we want out of God is acceptance without transformation, we are receiving his grace in vain, and our Christianity is worthless. You see, God... If you want only acceptance from God, but not the transformation that he wants to bring in your life, then your faith is in vain. You're not really trusting in God. You're not really entrusting your whole self over to him and to his loving care. Sadly, I think at times in our Christian faith, we want God to sit in heaven and click like on all that we are and all that we do. But God loves us too much to do that. He is committed to see us change, to, to see us transform more and more into the image of Christ. And that's what this chapter is all about. The one we just read, the Lord God was coming to his people Israel through the prophet Isaiah, saying basically, I've done everything for you in order to make you into the best version of yourself, to make you stable and fruitful, but instead, your root is all rottenness, and you're producing only stinky rancid fruit. Therefore, I'm coming to transform you. I love you too much to let you be a vineyard that only produces bad fruit. Now, that's what we'll see in this passage. And this passage is divided into three sections. First, a parable 
then an appraisal, and lastly, the only option that the Lord God had with his people. So in verses 1 through 7, Isaiah gives us that parable of the vineyard, which points to God's loving investment into his people Israel. Then in verses 8 through 23, we'll hear the appraisal of the vineyard as God, through the prophet Isaiah, lifts up six clusters of grapes that he gathers from the vineyard. And he shows that they're just stinky, ranted fruit. And then lastly, in verses 24 to 30, we hear God's only option. Only option available for him is the total destruction, in a sense, of his people in judgment. In order to remake them. In order to renew them. And so we'll see the, the parable, the appraisal, and then the only option. But first, the parable of the vineyard. The passage begins with this vineyard song. It's a lovely song. It seems like it's all pleasant and happy, and scholars think that it was probably a song that existed in Isaiah's day or before his day that Isaiah is drawing on, and he takes, and he kind of turns it on its head a bit. Because first, Isaiah shows us from this parable that God could not have invested more into his people in order to try and make them fruitful. We can think of all that God did for his people Israel. He took them out of Egypt, out of slavery, and he led them to that fertile hillside, the promised land. Then he dug it up and cleared it of all the stones. He helped his leaders, Joshua and the rest, the, the judges, and also King David, to clear the land of the Canaanites and all the idolatry, the false religion. Then God planted the best vines, the choicest vines. He gave them the law, the prophets, the temple, and the priests. And from his heavenly watchtower, God looked for a crop, for a harvest of good grapes. And like a farmer that does everything right, everything right with his land, investing in all the right equipment, doing all the right things, God did all the right things for Israel. But we hear the verdict. It yielded only bad fruit. And literally in verse 4, bad fruit there ought to be translated stinky fruit or rancid fruit, fruit that is worthless, not good for eating, not good for drinking. Now, what does this show us? It shows us that God does not just want humanity to be neutrally innocent. Innocent is not the standard. Innocent is not the goal. God wants us to be positively righteous good, upright. We are supposed to be fruitful producers of righteousness, holiness, and truth. And a vineyard, think of this, a vineyard that does not produce any fruit is a waste of time, energy, and resources. The whole point of investing in a farm is to pull, at the end of the season of harvest, pull in a big harvest of crop. That's the whole point. You work the land, you plant the seeds, you tend to the saplings, you water the growing vines, you protect and prune the branches. Why? Just to see green leaves? No. The gardener waits for the flowers to bud, blossom, and eventually bear fruit to then harvest. That's the whole point. You see, God wants us to be fruitful in our lives, to be productive, to do something good and impactful, what is righteous and holiness. He doesn't want your life to be fruitless. He made humanity with so much potential. And we forget about this, I think. What potential? What is the potential that was set before humanity? With the opportunity to fill this whole world with beautiful order, peace, perfect symbiotic 
harmony with all things, everything in its place and working as it should. No death, no bloodshed, no wars, no pain, no tears, no heartache, no oppression, no sin. Not only that, not only the absence of evil, but also the presence of good, a world full of life, loving care, rich conversation, pure pleasures, radiant joy, wholehearted justice, truth on every corner, and a blanket of love covering everyone, making us all feel safe and secure, a world warmed by the light of love and truth. That is the world that we were made to produce, and that's the potential that was written in, designed into the fabric of humanity. That's what Adam and Eve's job was in the beginning, in the Garden of Eden. That's what Israel's calling was as they entered into the Promised Land. And that's what God, in a sense, is calling all of us to do, to be productive, to bear fruitful lives of beauty, righteousness, and truth. But instead... As we look at humanity, as we look at our own lives, as we look back at Israel, as we look all the way back from the Garden of Eden with Adam and Eve, what do we see? Humanity has yielded bad fruit, rancid, stinky fruit. Look at verse 7. Verse 7, Isaiah says, God looked for justice, but saw bloodshed for righteousness, but heard cries of distress. You can't see it here in the English, but in the Hebrew, it's actually a play on words. The ugly things that he sees in humanity actually sound like the beautiful things that he looks for in humanity. It's a poetic irony here that is sad. And to carry it over into English, it would read like this. He looked for right, but only found riot. He listened for decency, but only heard cries of distress. He looked for this positive fruit of righteousness, beauty, but found only ugliness and ungodliness. So let's consider then, after now seeing this parable of the vineyard, let's consider briefly the appraisal of God's vineyard. So the appraisal of God's vineyard is found here in verses 8 through 23, where Isaiah, he's lifting up these six clusters of stinky grapes, the bad fruit of Israel, the bad fruit of humanity, and there's six woes that are brought against Israel for their sins. And in the literary structure of this passage, the first three woes correspond to the last three, and they form a kind of mirror image, the first three corresponding to the last three. And in the middle, in, verse, in, in clusters three and four, we find the central sin, which is godlessness. But first, first we see narcissistic hedonism. This is the stinky fruit that he first lifts up. In other words, self-centered pleasure-seeking. Self-centered pleasure-seeking. This cluster of sins found in verses 11 through 12, and then again in 22 to 23, that instead of being filled with the Spirit of God, people seek their own pleasures to their own ruin. Instead of being heroes and champions of justice and truth, we brag about our parties and our achievements of drinking and, and pleasure in those ways. This is a sad diagnosis of humanity. Instead of to seek, seeking to live with courage, to do what is good and right, people tend to run away from problems. We are afraid of stepping up to the plate, and instead of being filled with the Spirit, we're inflamed in our passions with all kinds of pleasures, just for ourselves. Narcissism, so self-centered, stinky, narcissistic, 
hedonism. The next cluster that he lifts up is relativism. Relativism, in other words, having no ethical center. What was once evil is now called good. Morality becomes fluid, and everyone does what is right in their own eyes. There's no longer any standard in society. And this is found in verses 18 to 20. We see this very clearly in our own day, in our own culture, right? Our culture feels justified in calling what was once evil now good, and what was once good now evil. Things as basic and as, as obvious as the nuclear family where a one man and, and a woman together in holy matrimony with children and a dog and a house, now that is considered to be a patriarchal institution that is oppressive. What used to be the ideal is now considered backwards and oppressive. You see what is happening in our own culture. And we could spend the whole day going down a long list of what once used to be considered evil and now our culture considers as good and vice versa. We've completely lost our ethical center. And why is that? Why? Because of the last and central problem with humanity. The last central fruit that Isaiah lifts up here is the fruit of godless autonomy. Godless autonomy. In other words, acting as if God does not exist and that I am my own moral authority, a law unto myself to do whatever I want. This is found in verses 19 to 21, and this is perhaps the greatest sin, the pride, the pride that gives God the finger, so to speak, and taunts at him as well. In pride, humans basically live in this way, I'll run my life as I want to, as I see fit. God, if you don't like it, show up and do something about it. Godless autonomy. Friends, this this was the appraisal of God's own vineyard, Israel. It is also an appraisal of humanity in general. Think of this. Israel is the people group that God most invested his time and energy into. He gave them every tool, every resource possible, and yet they still failed to produce good fruit. They failed, even with God's help. What does that tell us? It tells us something very important, that we need something different than just resources to help us. We need something different than just help from God to fix us. In order to make us into the best version of ourselves, we need a total renovation. Total renovation. And that leads us to our last point. We see in the parable of the vineyard, the appraisal of these cluster of fruits. And lastly, we see in verses 24 to 30, God's only option. In order for God to bring about a total renovation of us, we find that he must bring about a total destruction of us first. This was God's only option for his people. Look back at verses 4 to 5 in the text, God speaks, What more could I have done for my vineyard than I have done? When I looked for good grapes, why did it yield only bad? Now I will tell you what I'm going to do with my vineyard. I will take away its hedge, and it will be destroyed. How would God do this? How would this happen? Well, we find vivid imagery in the following verses, 24 to 30, that show us how God's judgment would come upon them because of their stinky fruits of evil. And in summary, we see that God's judgment comes like a fire 
Picture this, a fire licking its way across a dry landscape, eating up everything in its path. Like an earthquake that brings buildings down and leaves corpses in the street. Like a man whistling to let others come and finish off his fallen opponent. Like a lioness roaring to let other lions know that she has captured a prey and it's time to eat. Like a sailor caught in the roaring seas, looking to land for refuge, but finds that the land is only filled with dark chaos. There is no peace to be found. And from each illustration, we learn that the object of God's wrath has an inherent weakness in it. We have an inherent weakness in us that makes us liable to God's judgment, liable to self-destruction. Think of this dry stubble, grass, and roots, all dry. They are liable to fire. The buildings, they were not retrofitted for the earthquakes. The fallen opponent has no chance for survival, so he must be finished off. The prey in the grips of a lioness, you've seen it probably on, on the documentaries with animals, right? The prey stops fighting because there's no chance of escape. The sailor at sea, he's abandoned his own land. And in his absence, others have entered in and taken it over. And now that land is just dark chaos. What is God telling us through this? Well, God's judgment, loved ones, God's judgment is written in our own faults, in our own weaknesses, our own sins, and our selfishness. Uh, to draw this out, you can look back at Shakespeare's play, Julius Caesar, where Cassius says this, The fault, dear Brutus, is not in our stars, but in ourselves. Cassius, in that, he is saying that the, that the fate, the fate of the worlds, of the stars, is not our problem. It's not fate that dooms men. Instead, it is our own failings that doom us. The fault is in us, not in the stars. God is saying here, clearly, don't blame me for your downfall. You have doomed yourself. The fault is not in me. The fault is in you. But friends, that's what God is saying to us as well. We are doomed and headed for destruction and therefore in need of a total radical transformation and renovation. Old buildings, we know this, right? Old buildings need to be demolished in order to make room for new ones. Our old self, our old sinful self needs to be replaced with a new self. We need to die first in order to be made alive again. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul says in Galatians chapter 2, verse 19 to 21, where he says, Through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live but Christ who lives in me. and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. You see, we don't need God to like everything that we do, everything about us as we are currently. We need God to tear out our own sinful roots, and give us new life in Christ. This is the only way to the better version of ourselves. 
No more, no more resources or investment into humanity can fix us. Our roots are rotten. We need a complete reconstruction in order to arrive at that full perfection. We need to be attached to a new and living vine that is thriving. And in John chapter 15, we hear about that vine where Jesus Christ enters the scene and he says, I am the true vine and my father is the gardener. Jesus has in mind this vineyard song from Isaiah chapter 5. He's claiming to be the new Israel, the true Israel. Jesus is claiming to be the only way to real fruitful living. The only way to become the best version of yourself is by uniting yourself to Jesus Christ, the true vine. Jesus says in John 15, I am the true vine. My father is the gardener. He cuts off every branch in me that does not bear fruit, while every branch that does bear fruit he prunes so that it will be more fruitful. Remain in me as I also remain in you. No branch can bear fruit by itself. It must remain in the vine. Neither can you bear fruit unless you remain in me. I am the vine and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If you do not remain in me, you are like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up and thrown into the fire and burned. This is to my Father's glory, that you bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. From this, from what Jesus is teaching us, we learn that he is the only vine of true and lasting fruitfulness. So instead of doing all that we can do in our own strength, in our own power, we need to do all that we can to get more of Jesus, to remain in him, to seek him out all the more. We need to draw more and more from him and his love day after day. He promises to do this for us. And he tells us, believe in me and you will bear much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. We need to abandon, therefore, all our independent strivings and start abiding in the only vine that is thriving. What do I mean? Well, Jesus is the only human of all of human history that has produced only good fruits of righteousness and truth. He is the only vine with indestructible life as well. He is the vine that is thriving because he's the only human that lived a full life, died a real death, and then rose again bodily from the dead. He is the vine with indestructible life. And so even though we are not as fruitful as we should be, if we abide in the vine, then one day we too will be raised up and planted in the new creation where Christ will dwell with us and we will produce only always fruits of justice, peace, and love. And we begin in this life to bear much fruit as we abide in him. So at the end, loved ones, we realize that we are at fault. We are doomed for self-destruction. And we can see that in society around us. It's evident. Yet in the gospel of God, he is promising to fully know us and to fully love us. The approval and the acceptance that we so long for, not just the likes on social media, but God our Father saying, I love you, I like you, and I am for you. But remember, him being for us means that he loves us too much to leave us where we currently 
are. He sent his son to die and rise again from the dead to be a new vine for us to attach to, to unite ourselves to. If you want God's acceptance in Jesus' full loving acceptance, you must also be willing to receive the transformation that he will bring. You must be willing to die to yourself and let him remake you day after day. What does the fruit of your life look like as you evaluate and examine your own life, your own fruit? Are you thriving on the vine? Or are you shriveling up? Where are you abiding? Where is your heart abiding? Have you come to Jesus? He alone has indestructible life. Come to him, abide in his love, start abiding in the only vine that is thriving. This is the way, the only way to eternal life, the truth in Jesus Christ. Abide in him. Amen. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you so much for your son, the vine that is truly thriving. Lord, we ask that you would teach our hearts to die to self, that we might abide in him and bear much fruit, showing ourselves to be true disciples of Christ. Lord, we rejoice in the love and acceptance that you freely give us, and we ask, Lord, that you would also make us willing to receive the transformation that you will bring, which will often be hard and difficult. Pruning hurts. Dying to ourself is painful. Lord, Give us the courage to face that transformation with the hope of becoming better versions of ourselves through Christ for your glory. Make this happen not only in us individually, for that is a selfish ambition, but help us as a community grow in greater conformity to the image of Christ that we might grow together on the vine that is thriving Jesus. All this for your glory we ask in his name. Amen.